welcome, lucky listeners. Grab yourselves a hot cup of... Tuck yourself down deep into the covers and make sure the lights are on. It's time for Read Me a Nightmare. (laughs) Welcome to episode 23 of Read Me a Nightmare. I'm Angelique Fonz, and I'm going to keep this intro short because I can't wait for you to hear this story. Kelly Pigeon as a Goomba Stallion is something I won't forget anytime soon. Heads up, it's short, but definitely rated R. Kelly took a few liberties with the script and the language gets salty. Why Ride a Broom When You Can Ride a Horse was published in Dark Dispatch when I submitted to a call for identity horror. Stay tuned for a chat with the creator of Dark Dispatch and author herself, Sandra Rotan, after the reading. So, Grab a whip, slide on some chaps, and prepare for a wild ride. Being a recently gelded paint horse with fine black and white patches ain't exactly what makes me unique. No, no, no. What makes me unique is I'm a man trapped in his equine body. Huh, at least I used to be a man. Now I guess what I'm called is a uh, eunuch. You know, you date one wrong broad, and I'm condemned to prancing around in leather gear and munching on old dry grass. I mean, who'd have thunk that Karen was an actual witch? The hell was I thinking using a dating app called Earth Mothers and Mates? So my buddy tells me about it. He says, he says, you know, the ratio of men to women, it's like completely in our favor, right? He gave me some rigmarole about the usual online sites means millions of men begging the ladies to swipe to the right, right? Yeah, I got you swiped to the right right here. Cause boy, did I ever get to swiping. Now with these frickin' hooves, all I can do is swipe at the shavings in this wood cell. I used to like being on top, but she wanders down the stables whenever she wants, rides me hard, puts me away wet, if you know what I mean. There's my sweet little patchy twat, she says while shoving an apple between my lips. I neigh and I nip at her, but she just giggles and dances away, sliding the bolt shut on my stall. So I, you know, what do you call it, nicker, right, desperately, willing Karen to come back. At least when she's here, I feel safe. There's a big orange horse beside me, a big old chestnut mare. She bears her teeth at me with her ears pinned flat against her head. I got no doubt she could kick me right through the stall and trample me to death one of these nights. Oh, and you think you got problems. But I digress. Back to the story. So I thought I scored one night when I first saw Karen's profile on Earth Mothers and Mates, right? Long black hair to her butt, great bod, she looked like a goer. So how was I to know she was, like, super sensitive? We had a great date. I took her to my favorite pub, we watched the hockey game... Let her order any beer that was on tap, shoved a bunch of wings down her throat, and then took her back home. Oh, buddy, was it a great time. So we went back to her place. She invited me up for a nightcap. I mean, who am I not to oblige? Because this broad was looking for love. There was candles and shit burning everywhere. I mean, it's ambience, am I right? I mean, I ain't a half-bad-looking guy, right? Tall, dark-haired, I got a pretty good bod from pumping iron. So we had our drinks. Now, she only had wine. I managed to get one glass down to be polite, you know, but I'm pretty much a brewski guy. Then it got down to business. We got all romantical. (laughs) I gotta tell you, she's pretty good lay. 
curvy in all the right places. You know, a little bada bing, bada bang, bada boom, if you know what I'm saying. And then the shit went south quick. She wants to know what we're doing together tomorrow night. So I had to let her know that I was uh, here for a good time tonight, not for a long time kind of guy. Well, Karen didn't like that shit one bit. So she got a little hot under the collar and not the way I usually like it. Telling me she's a lady and I had to learn to be a gentleman. Then, a la Kazam, I'm a fucking horse. And then before you know it, she gets on the horn and starts calling a vet. Are you fucking kidding me? Mamma mia, I can't even tell you about none of that. I think it's been like a week since that night. It's kind of hard to tell time because, you know, I'm a fucking horse. I can't tell time and all I really do anymore is sleep. Who knew napping could be so fulfilling? And it's not even like I got to go to the office, am I right? Let someone else sell them used cars. Now, I got a favorite place in the paddock under a big oak tree. And thank goodness that red bitch of a mare is in a different field. They keep the geldings or, you know, us ballless boys here together when we're out to kick our heels up for the day. Now, I got to say Karen got some great hands. I do kind of like it when she uses that soft brush and grooms my coat. I twist my neck in the air and flap my lips when she hits the best spots. Ooh, yeah, baby. And then it hits me again like a ton of bricks. She's the one that trapped me in his horse body and stole my fucking nuts. Then I lift my leg to kick her, but she goes and gives me a little nose pinch, and I put it down, because, you know, I can't resist a little nose pinch. I thought about jumping the fence in my paddock and hightailing it for the hills, but where the hell would I go? And what if that red horse followed me? I don't even want to be alone with the chestnut mare in the next stall. So then I get to thinking, maybe life ain't so bad here. Truck pulled up with a whole load of carrots, and they smells delish. I used to joke that I wish I could find a woman who was into leather and whips. Hey, guess now I found one. Am I right? Thank you, Kelly, for your good fellow's interpretation of my flash piece. Now, let's sit down with Sandra Rattan. She's authored several novels, two of which have been translated into Japanese. She works full-time as a writer and has some unique insights into the publishing world. All right, we're sitting here today with Sandra Rattan, and she purchased my story, Why Ride a Broom When You Can Ride a Horse? And we just heard the remarkable Kelly Pigeon read it. So uh, let's ask Sandra, first of all, for her magazine, Dark Dispatch, why this story? You know, this was one of those stories that you're going through a lot of slush. Um, for this particular anthology call, we had uh, well over 600 uh, valid submissions, not including the ones that um, couldn't be processed for various reasons. But anyways, <laughs> we had a lot. And obviously it was it was an identity horror submission call. And so a lot of the content was was uh, quite serious, very powerful. You know, we had far, far more fantastic stories um, submitted than we could use. But this was one of those stories that I read and laughed and laughed and laughed. And it was just one of those stories. It, it, it created such a different emotional response for me. And that was really enjoyable in the midst of reading some powerful but very heavy content. And uh, also, you know, I, I mean, I do love something that just kind of it fit 
brilliantly to our call and and went in a completely different emotional direction um, than than most people did. So, you know, it was just, it was a standout in that respect for me. And it was one of the most memorable stories that I read from the entire, um, you know, submission pile that we got uh, because, because of the way that it, it affected me. And, you know, and we don't laugh near enough. If there's one thing that the last, I'd say six years or so have really reinforced to me, it's, Oh, how, how, how absolutely wonderful it is to just have a good laugh. So I really enjoyed the comedic elements of this story and, and, and it resonated with me in a way that I thought I want to share this. I want other people to have a good laugh and while being entertained with a great story. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. Well, thank you. It's interesting. Wait till you hear. Wait till you hear Kelly's read. So Kelly is the professional voice for Global TV, and I work with him in my day job. And he's so sweet that he's volunteering his time to read this. But he put his own spin on it, and he read it like like a monster, <laughs> like a human monster. And he's dropping f bombs, and he's ad libbing. And I was almost peeing myself listening to it. And it's my own story. I mean, I've read this story ten bazillion times because I wrote it. I was peeing right. myself when I listened to Kelly read it. So you'll have to, when you listen to this podcast and you hear it, I'm sure you'll appreciate it. In fact, normally I like to put sound effects in the stories, but this one I'm like, no, I didn't put a single one in because I didn't want to distract from the genius of this man's read. But um, let's talk about Dark Dispatch in your career. So uh, first of all, I I always ask this question because as a writer, who, of course, don't we all have the dream? I would like to just write full time, but of course, I mean, and not that my day job isn't fantastic, but isn't it the dream just to be the next Stephen King or Margaret Atwood or whomever and just live off your yeah. prose? Are you a full time writer or are you like 99.9% of us doing something else as well? Well, to be technical, I am a full time writer, but that's because my, my freelance work is all writing. I write content. Um, I write website content. I write blog posts. I write whatever's required. Guest posts, articles. Uh, it just depends on um, the specific client and their needs. I want to talk about your books. And I'm very interested in how you, some of them are translated into Japanese. Yes, there's two that were translated into Japanese. My first book came out with a small press that no longer exists. and That was 2007. Um, At the time, it was both revolutionary and taboo to be using print-on-demand, for which I was soundly chastised publicly on blogs and whatnot because I didn't have a real publisher. It's 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 a hard thing because like you're so excited about having your first book come out, and there were so many wonderful things that I associate with having my first book come out. But there's also a lot of uh, there were a lot of people who were very happy to rain on my parade and make it a miserable experience too. So, oh, no. uh, however, yeah, yeah, it was just, I mean, it was the way that things were back in the aughts, right? Um, it was a very different landscape than it is now. You know, people who were openly criticizing me for having a publisher that used print on demand in 2007, you know, by 2009 were self-publishing. The one of the things that came out of that, though, was that um, 
the exposure that I got from the first book and the positive reviews and um, and blurbs from a lot of different people that were quite well known uh, enabled me to get an agent for my second book. And of course, having an agent, um, you know, makes a very big difference because your book is getting in front of editors at major publishing houses. And so um, my next book deal was with Dorchester and Dorchester uh, published three of my books, the Nolan Hart and Tain series. And two of those books were translated into Japanese and published by a Japanese publisher. So that, that was kind of how that came about. Talk to me about your first book. You know, the first book, Suspicious Circumstances. All of these books that I'm talking about are, are crime fiction. Suspicious Circumstances sort of blended the worlds of both an amateur investigator and and a cop because the, the two protagonists, one is a cop and one is a reporter. And they're sort of forced together to investigate this case. And, and so that that was the first book. Um, so, so cozy the, mixed with tradi- like cozy mixed with crime. I wouldn't. Or- yeah, I don't know that I would call it cozy. No, no, no cozy too. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, because if, if you're on the slippery slope, like reporters are very borderline to investigative procedures. And I came from a journalism background. I had a newspaper column when I was 13. And then I went to Loyalist College and studied journalism. You know, there's a lot of similarities in the approach that a journalist and a police officer can take. But it's a it's a very there's a very logical type of progression that you go through in terms of, you know, uncovering the information that you need for a story or for an investigation. So how did so, you learn to structure? How did you learn to structure your book? Because I think the first book is always such a hurdle. <laughs> when you're taking a writing course, they are going to teach you to pre-plot. They can't teach you how to pants a book, but right. they can teach you how to plot a book. And so um, so of course it, um, you know, I had done an outline, I had done different things for this and was working on it. And then, um, between, between finishing the course, cause that wasn't the only thing I did for the course. I just started it with the course. You know, I mean, I, I was taking that course in whatever it was I started, I think in 2000. And at the time we still mailed our assignments to our teachers and got them and, and got our feedback mailed back to us by post. So, wow. <laughs> you know, it sounds funny to say that now, considering how things changed, it was, it was different. And so uh, somehow I had lost my outline. And so I sat down and I read, I, but I had my chapters oddly enough. And so I sat down and I read my chapters and I, and I thought, you know, and it's one of those things where you, you go back to it and you go, this, this isn't half bad. And so I had to look into the story and the characters to try to figure out what the story was. So, so all I had was the opening chapters. I had no idea how it ended. I had no idea really what was going on. And I had to look to those characters to sort of tell me and give me a launch point. That is how I learned how to become a pantser. I was doing Spine Tangler magazine at the time, and um, I'd started that in 2005. And and so I made I met a lot of people through the e-zine, and um, and I went to a number of different conventions and met a number of different authors. And people were incredibly friendly and approachable. And and so actually, uh, an author, a Scottish author named Stuart McBride. 
um, spent 12 hours with me um, in a DM chat, basically shredding and tearing my manuscript. And I learned more that day than I learned in two-year diploma for my creative writing course. I learned so much about point of view and about just about your character development, about the number of characters that you use. You know, there were whole characters that disappeared from the early drafts. Uh, you know, it's, it was a fantastic learning experience, one I'm forever grateful for, because it was probably the single most um, important event in terms of my growth as a writer. Um, well, fair enough. How did you even realistically, did you spend days out with police officer? How did you learn to accurately write police procedurals? Mm, well, you know, that I think that's one of the, the tricks of it is that they aren't necessarily always accurate. <laughs> but, right, right. Uh, um, you know, there's a difference between what is real and what is believable. And so if fiction is about plausibility, it's it's about what people find believable, not what is actually realistic. I did invest, I, I did talk to um, actually an indigenous um, police officer, RCMP officer. I did a lot of research with him, uh, particularly for dog handling, because he was the RCMP's national dog trainer at the time. Mm-hmm. I did a fair bit of reading research. There's a difference between city police and national police. Yeah. And so when you get into all these layers of policing, it's it's a lot of reading. It's a lot of Q&As. It's a lot of talking to people who who have experience. Yeah. And that, so that was how I learned. So which book was your most profitable, would you say? Like, is writing police procedurals profitable? I mean, it certainly can be because you've got uh, people, uh, you know, such as Ian Rankin and Val McDermott. I mean, there's plenty of people who've written police procedurals who have, you know, um, gotten seven-figure book deals um, from very popular series. So Michael Connolly would be another example. So certainly police procedurals can be profitable and, and can be very popular. For me, I, I suppose my most profitable ones would have been What Burns Within and The Frailty of Flesh, which were the first two books that came out with Dorchester um, before their ultimate bankruptcy. And those books were the two that also sold to a Japanese publisher. I, I continue to get royalties from those books. Not a lot now, um, but I also don't really promote them as much because they're police procedurals. And that's a little it's a little uncomfortable for me. Um, Harvest of Ruins, which was self-published, it does have police procedural elements, but also a great portion of the book is not from the perspective of the police. And it's more, there's more personal and family drama in that book. Um, so I feel like it's one that I feel more comfortable recommending to people as an entry point if they're interested in, in checking out my crime fiction. Okay, let's talk about Dark Dispatch. Yeah, just tell us a little bit about the inspiration and basically how much time does it take up in your life? Hmm, those are actually more challenging questions than you would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember what year I started Dark Dispatch in. <laughs> a couple of years ago. Because where I'm at now is a difficult place. When you talk about how much time does it take, Um I mean, it really varies. Last year, Laurel Hightower and I uh, were working on the Identity Horror Anthology Project, and that was a very time-consuming project because of the volume of submissions and getting the book ready for print and release and uh, dealing with contracts. Just, it, it was a time-consuming process from start to finish. And so 
And what happens with dark dispatch is that I tend to have spurts where I'm working on it a lot more and then lulls in between. And I've really been contemplating what I wanted to do with dark dispatch long-term. I've wanted to continue to be able to support particularly marginalized voices and um, make sure that it's an inclusive space where everybody can feel safe submitting their content. That's really important to me. Uh, What I've developed a recent interest in though, uh, really stems from the political landscape uh, and that's banned books. Um, oh, interesting. I just, I just read this morning, um, and I screenshot the tweet to follow up on it because I haven't really gotten into all the details, but I just read this morning about um, a community, I believe it was Ohio, they have voted to defund their public library because the library refuses to take an LGBTQ book off of the shelves. Whoa. And this is the world that we are living in now. And this is incredibly uh, frightening to me. Um, Is there a new submission call coming up for Dark Dispatch? Are you going to be in hiatus for a while or what's in the future here? Well, right now I need to try to finish processing subs that I have. And part of me now that I'm thinking about really focusing on banned books and banned book content and and at least trying to bring more awareness to those books, whether that be through site reviews or interviews or whatnot on the site. I'm thinking a lot more about going forward, focusing on publishing content that would be banned, specifically because I want that content to find a home. It doesn't mean anything goes. I mean, I'm talking about you know, a lot of times these actions are taken against LGBTQ authors. They're taken against um, Black, Hispanic, Indigenous, and Asian authors, or Asian heritage authors. So I don't know. I'm I'm still mulling over what that looks like and how to piece that together um, moving forward. Um, you know, I would say that a lot of the content that did get published in the Dead Inside probably would fall under the bannable categories. That sounds good. Actually, I don't even, I don't know that even my story would have sold very easily. So thank you for giving it a home. (laughs) I loved your story and I'm glad that you wrote it. And this is one of the things about, I mean, we, we can gripe about technology when it doesn't work and it is frustrating, but technology has given us this ability to, to publish in a number of different platforms and to get more content out there. And it's really just is um, trying to find the right readers and, and find the audience for it. And it's a wonderful thing when you can do that and play a small part in somebody else's journey. And, you know, and that's what I always hope for. I mean, the one thing I want when I read is I always want to read a good story. I don't, if it makes me laugh, if it makes me cry, I just want to read a good story um, where I feel connected and entertained. And, um, and, and so I really enjoy the opportunity to be able to play a small part in in helping somebody else's work get out there and find its audience. Which is which is wonderful. And if it wasn't for people like you, you know, this whole slew, this whole community of authors, like I said, this all of us, a screaming mass of water drops in the ocean looking for homes <laughs> wouldn't have any place to go. Um, so yeah. I I look forward to seeing what your next project will be. And thank you so much for your time today. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening and hanging in to the very end. If you want to learn more about Kelly Pigeon or Sandra Rattan, there are some links in the show notes. 
You can also visit my website at www.fawns.ca and sign up for my newsletter. If you have time, please leave a review for Read Me a Nightmare. Sleep with your lights on until the next episode of Read Me a Nightmare.